0: Hello, and welcome to another episode of What a Waste of Time. I'm Jim Woodall, I'm here with my good friend Callum. Hi. And uh, today we are going to be discussing um, the movie adaptation of Donna Tartt's The Goldfinch. Uh, And I guess whether or not it can be fixed. We didn't like it. um, Neither did the five other people who went to see it. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So I'm going to start the timer. Okay, so... Um, This is sort of a sequel to uh, an older episode of podcast we did where we discussed the book uh, The Goldfinch and sort of really that snobbery related to the way some people review that book. Mm -hmm. Uh, We both enjoy the book quite a lot. Um, And then they made a film. Um, And uh, we did not like the film. Um, Callum, loosely sum up what the story is about. Um, so
1: a boy called Theo Decker, um, is going to the Metropolitan Museum of Art with his mother in, I think it's, well, like the present of the, the 20, early 20, early 2000s. Um, at that point, the book exists in our world. And then there is a fictional attack that did not happen. Um, on the Metropolitan Museum of Art while he is there there's a bomb a number of people are killed including his own mother Um, during the sort of post explosion uh, confusion Theo's trying to get out of the museum a a man whose first name I'm blanking on but his surname is Blackwell um, gives Theo a ring with the name of his business Hobart and Blackwell on it and then points out what Theo thinks is... Well, he thinks what... Theo thinks the man is pointing at a painting that's in the room, uh, which is a painting called The Goldfinch, um, which is a real painting. And Theo thinks the man is saying, take the painting to this place where I work, which is Hobart and Blackwell. So Theo takes the painting um, and steals it. And then the book is about Theo's childhood and then also moves into his adulthood and the consequences of both the death of his mother and his choice to steal this incredibly valuable painting Um, that's that's like the dust jacket version of what happens Um, I think that it's another way of putting it which actually uh, Michelle Obama of all people uh, reviewed the book um, which is an interesting review Um, and she summed it up much more nicely which is a boy who is once broken by the death of a family member and is broken further by his own greed. Yeah, which I think is basically
0: the because the choices Theo makes later in life are pretty yeah. unpalatable. Um, and it's it's I think it's fair to say that it's it's a pretty difficult book to adapt. Yeah, uh, into film. Um, and I, I I'm curious to see how, how much you agree with my assessment as to why. Um, but I think a a lot of it has to do with, um, film, the way film narratives are generally structured, unless the plots are very, very simple, is that like each scene needs to drive the plot forward in a significant way. Like each scene sort of, in order to have efficient storytelling, you need each scene to be like, oh, this thing happens, which prompts the next scene, which prompts the next scene, which isn't really how The Goldfinch is written. Um, I think the way Donna Tart writes a lot. I think the same is true of her other book, *The Secret History*. Um, I think she would like a, a plot event will happen that uh, causes a like a momentous change, like a terrorist attack on an art museum, um, and then there'll be a sort of like a period where she's just describing, like, what the situation that has arisen from that event is like. Um, and then, maybe this will lead to like you know the next plot beat, uh but I think she does just spend a lot of time just being like, well what what is it like going home and waiting for your mother to come back because you don't want to admit that she's dead, or what is it like um living in Las Vegas after your life has just been uprooted by your um shit of a father coming back into your life um and i th- think that is that works very well in literature because you can spend as much time as you want, and also these are all interesting situations. Uh, but like part of the problem of adapting that into film is that it's I think it's much harder to sort of sum up um, the mood of a situation in a time efficient way. Well, especially I think it's difficult if you go off if you look at the text of a novel and go,
1: well I guess I'll put you know I guess I'll te- I, I guess I'll just put this into final draft and put int yeah. bedroom at the top of that and that's it. <clears throat> Whereas, like, if you... I don't know, you could... The scene of, like, waiting at home to find out if your own mother is dead, there's a way you make that interesting on screen if you have the character doing something when they're by themselves. Mm. Obviously, Theo wouldn't do this and it wouldn't make sense for the scene, but, like, it's why you have scenes in good movies of characters just doing things like trying to cook something and not being able to do it or, like, checking their answer phone messages. And it's essentially Mm. business but it's a way for an actor and a director to articulate yeah. what that person's feeling in a way that we can physically see. I think
0: Breaking Bad is always quite good at doing scenes like that.
1: Right. Like, like Walter shaving his head is like a classic example. Yeah. Like, that's a huge moment. But in a book, you probably wouldn't have to shave his head. You'd probably just be like, Walter thought, mm-hmm. you know, like... <laughs> not that it'd be easy to write that, but it's just a different craft.
0: Yeah. Um, but this adaptation didn't do a lot of that. Um no and i think as i said to you as we left the film i think the biggest thing the biggest mistake that it made um was the way it sort of chopped and changed the order of events um
1: yeah for no
0: reason well i can i can think well i think you summed it like you summed it up quite well we sort of felt like that what they did was just like oh this isn't working let's just um have a crazy day in the edit and see what happens yeah um I can sort of see what they're going with, because this is a lesson I've learned in my own writing, is that if if you feel like your story is not engaging, um, one way to, which might be a lazy way of creating engagement, is to inject mystery, which is to, like, you can quite easily drop the reader or audience into a situation and withhold some of the information about that situation. And that uh you know' is a great way of having it because then your audience is suddenly, like, "Oh, what's going on here? I need to read on to find out more and I think um because they they decided um in the final cut of the film, they opened with um Theo being taken to um um oh, what were the what were the family called um who he stays with after oh, the, the Barbers. The, the barber's house uh being dropped on their doorstep because he's he's ha- named them as the people he wants to stay with whilst his situation is up in the air um and it's quite an engaging way to sort of like oh this boy is dropped on someone's doorstep we're aware that something terrible has happened but it's not communicated immediately what it is i think that's a really engaging way to start a story because and then you go like oh what's happened to this poor boy and how is this ten tenuous situation going to resolve itself um, I think the problem of doing that to the Goldfinch um, is then, like well, the Goldfinch sort of, you completely change the, the context of all the scenes that follow it, because a lot of the context of the scenes in the book um, are made more tense by the knowledge that this boy has stolen a painting, uh, like at his interview with the police, for instance. He, the whole time he's convinced that they suspect he's guilty, when... You can infer that they probably don't, because um, he's thirteen and yeah. his mum just died, and that's not. Yeah, they're just trying to they're trying to figure out if Al Qaeda yeah. did this or whatever, <laughs> as opposed to yeah, yeah. Um, and yeah, so all of a sudden, like the fact that they don't start with this with the you know, precipitating event of the story, which is the explosion, means that you don't really fully understand the significance of him stealing this painting. Um, especially since they don't reveal exactly how it happened until like halfway through the film um and it's not really a revelation because this this scene with um uh blackwell um you know is like works in in the book pretty well because it's just like it's disorienting and confusing and like oh, what's going on and how how like and then you see, oh, that was a stupid decision. What are the consequences of this going to be? But because it appears in the middle of the film, it's sort of treated like a revelation. Like, oh, this is how he got the painting. But by that point in the story, we don't, it doesn't matter how he got the painting anymore. Yeah, I mean, it's
1: like, now I think about it, it's a bit like if you'd had Lord of the Rings, but just the, the film called Lord of the Rings, but never mentioned the ring at all. Mm. They'd just been like, Frodo, you've got to go to Mordor. Like, talk about later. And yeah. then there's like loads of wars and Frodo seems really strung out and tired all the time. And then at the end, they were like, why was Frodo? So it, oh, it was that ring that he dropped in at the end. And it's yeah. like, no, because, because even in the goldfinch they sort of, I think they, she literally used these words at some point, like the painting is treated in Theo's mind as almost magical. Like it is this item of which is, it's the cause of all the bad things that have happened to him, but he also can't let go of it. And to not have this like, Anchor for all this other stuff that happens in this very dense book to not be there in the narrative is a like it does feel like a decision that came out of crazy day at the edit. <clears throat> it's also like I think one there are so many examples uh, in in filmmaking in general of directors looking at things that directors twenty years ago did and looking at it on the surface level and being like, well, if I do the surface level thing my movie will be good like that movie. Mm. So if you look at movies from like 90s and very early 2000s, like, I don't know, like Pulp Fiction or Maholland Drive. Yes, they are in a funny, well, is Mulholland Drive in a funny order? Let's not do those seven podcasts. <laughs> but like, for the sake of argument, like Pulp Fiction and Maholland Drive are in odd or like strange narrative structures and they don't follow traditional narrative structures. However, on a plot level, But the emotional arc is exactly what you'd expect in in a normal story. Where it's like, there's a beginning, middle and end. And like the audience is taken on that journey. Even if it's through the course of multiple characters, there's a really concrete planned emotional arc that is best served by the narrative being chopped up. They didn't have Pulp Fiction in order and then go, oh, this is dragging a bit. Let's just chop it all up. Like Pulp Fiction was built that way. And like, can you make big decisions in the edit and change your mind? Absolutely. But you better like do all the work to make your movie fit that new structure. And they didn't. They just took a yeah. story that wasn't really working as a linear one and was probably, I imagine, they probably had, like, three and
0: a half hours or something mad. And then they were just like, oh, well, we've got to make it shorter. Mm. You know. Yeah. I sort of, like, if you're going to reveal um, information that you've withheld like halfway through the film, like Pulp Fiction does, um, it needs to be, like, a revelation. It needs to affect that emotional journey in a significant way. Right. For instance, in Pulp Fiction revealing that um, Jules and... I'm going to say John Travolta and Samuel L. Jackson because i forgot the names of the characters. But revealing that those two characters are in the diner uh, halfway through the film... Right. ...when the scene that we were treated to at the beginning of the film is about to take place changes your understanding. Because first oh, we just saw a robbery at the beginning of the film. And then knowing... Oh, these gangster hitmen are in the diner. That's not going to end well, that's, <laughs> right? That's that's that changes your emotional journey. Whereas, like telling like why Theo stole the painting halfway through the film doesn't change your context um, and or your understanding of all the scenes that preceded it and uh, what is going to happen next. It's just like, oh, I guess that's why. Um, yeah, it's just it, which is what the movie felt like because it was. Uh, yeah,
1: so the, arc, the rough arc of the movie is that um, uh, we'd see Theo's childhood in New York after he steals this painting. Uh, first he's with the Barbers, who are the family that Jim just mentioned. Wealthy Upper West Side family. Um, he is then tracked down by his estranged father who takes him to live with Vegas with him, um, where he meets his life. And in Vegas, he meets another kid called Boris who features very prominently in the narrative after that. And then following that, we see Theo's life as an adult and we see some of his life as an adult in New York and then Boris comes back into his life um and i we should probably put a disclaimer for spoilers at the start of this podcast yeah yeah yeah. Boris comes back into his life uh the painting is gone for reasons I guess we can go into and we discuss those specific parts and then they have to get the painting back and then it enters into a sort of crime heist thing Mm. for the last part of the narrative um and yeah, that's the that's kind of the overall arc of the thing. Um, and that oh, it was amazing. I feel like there that's like these key plot points, but the movie chops all that up. It's not the easiest thing to sum up anyway. And you just feel like you're getting stuff fired at you. Yeah, it's like oh, I guess that's why I stole the painting. Oh, Boris is back. I guess. Yeah. Oh, we're
0: going to the and the weirdest choice for me, I thought in the in the sort of weird shopping of orders and chronology was uh, the moment he moves to Las Vegas uh, with his father, it jumps ahead to when he returns to New York. So it's like, you've just been told he's left Las Vegas, and it doesn't... Doesn't tell you how he came back to New York because that's for later. It's just like, oh, and he's he's in New York again. And by the time you like, you're, you're still just thinking like, what, but, but and there's been a time skip, so you already you're having to do the mental gymnastics of, oh, this is Theo and he's still in New York for some reason, and so is Pippa even though she moved away. And I guess that's all changed and we're here now. Then you go back to Las Vegas again and. You just left wondering, like, well, why did we jump ahead? What did that tell me? What did that reframe about what I'm seeing now?
1: Yeah, apart from giving us some cool shots in the rain or whatever. Yeah. It, yeah, it doesn't make... I also just think there are... There are these big structural problems with the movie where it does the classic thing of feeling too long but also not spending time on any one thing. Mm. There are also just so many smaller problems in terms of casting, performance... Aesthetics are a huge problem with the movie. I feel like this movie stance on the material is: this book won the Pulitzer Prize. Yeah, absolutely. And that is it. It has like, and that, that
0: that it looks like a like, oh, this is a great literature film, right? Um, and ugh, I don't want to say like, I think we did a, a pretty good job in the last uh, episode we did about the goldfinch being like we understand the goldfinch better than literary critics, <laughs> yeah. Uh, but there is I think there is a truth to that where it's um like it it's not you can't it's not like other like sort of classic pieces of great literature. It's the it's which just the tone is different and
1: Yeah, I mean I think one of the things that was interesting, which I found which I haven't put two and two together on but found out was um there have been in I think in the past forty years there have been two Pulitzer Prize-winning books that have been adapted into movies that were successful at the box office. Mm. Um, and both of them starred Nicole Kidman. <laughs> so, cool Who also stars in The Goldfinch, eh, if you haven't seen it. Exactly. So clearly, the ration... I, I mean, because I feel like the cast feels quite thin considering mm. the prestige the book had. The two yeah. people you look at and go, oh, cool, them are... Uh, um, Uh, Nicole Kidman and Sarah Paulson yeah and I feel like what must have happened is that everyone went because it's generally said to be true you can't really it's hard to sell prestige literature adaptations now Mm. especially when they're big and expensive and they went who can sell a prestigious literature movie and then Nicole Kidman went I can sell a prestigious (laughs) literature movie I mean she can exactly and they went great let's get Nicole Kidman on board and then every other actor went I can't sell a prestigious <laughs> movie and then didn't do it. Sarah Paulson in interviews has apparently talked about how she basically desperately, desperately, desperately wanted to play Xandra from day one. And the moment the book came out, I was hassling her agents about it. Hmm. That's why she's in it. Um, the only other person I can think of is Jeffrey Wright, who played Hobie, hmm. who it was one of, that was our favourite bit of cast. Yeah, no, he's great in it. And he's the one where I was like, ah, Good. But also Jeffrey Wright's not quite on the level of Sarah Pot. Like, Sarah mm. Paulson's massive from TV. Nicole Kidman is hugely famous. There's, everyone else is just like, oh, it's nice to see them, mm. but they've not got too much to do. Yeah. Or they are just not great, like Ansel Engelhort and a lot of the other
0: people. Yeah. And the, the film does also... Well, the, the story presents this problem in that uh, two of our most significant characters, who are Theo and Boris... Uh, are introduced as children and we meet them later as adults. So that means you already uh, means oh, our main characters are going to be young actors and it's harder to find good famous young actors. Which is probably why they cast Finn Wolfhard. Even oh, though, of course he's yeah he's yeah. the other big person. But and I don't I don't want to be too hard on him because he is a child. Um, but uh, and and Boris is an extremely difficult role to play because um, he's like. To play him Russian is wrong because he's from he's moved around a lot as a child and has a very distinct accent, um, but it's which is difficult to place and, and arguably doesn't exist. Well, yeah. like it does on like
1: the on like two expat children who've moved around <laughs> a lot, but like the
0: odds of one of them being an actor is pretty slim. Yeah. So, yeah. so 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 Boris is very difficult to play, and why I didn't and I, I didn't wasn't particularly inspired let's say by finn wolfhard's performance i don't bear him any will to that because that is a difficult role but then also the fact that we, we introduce these characters as children and then we have to reintroduce them as adults which means uh both the main characters you need to get um two actors to play um and neither of those like they um are going to be for the duration of the film so it may not be very attractive to Actors.
1: Well, if you structure it the way this movie did, where a significant part of the movie is devoted to the childhood, because yeah. any actor's going to look at it and go, oh, well I'm not here for very long so why am I... And again, I feel like that's why Ansel Engelhort did it, because like, prestige is not something you think with Ansel Engelhort. Mm. so I feel like that that's how they got him, as opposed to someone who frankly has a little more personality I've seen him be good, he's good in Baby Driver, but that's like a, so, a strong silent protagonist type mm. role as opposed... And Theo is... Not that, yeah, <laughs> and
0: so yeah it's yeah. a very difficult one um yeah, I do like and speaking more uh, like how, the way I mentioned about how um this book is about uh, spends a lot of time exploring situations, um I think the problem of then translating that into narrative well, well sorry into a film narrative um, which i I can see quite clearly in the way they structured this film is that it's it's quite difficult, i imagine, to um to filter the events of the film with what's essential and what's not. Um, And I feel like there were lots of moments um, in the film where it's just like paying lip service to something that happened in the book because it feels like, well, we're trying to set a mood here and so we need to show this important thing that happened. Even though that thing isn't necessarily consequential in terms of the overarching narrative. Uh, For instance, uh, the the one thing that really sticks out at me is... um, yeah so there's an um they in the book they discuss a lot about um boris and his sexuality and how he uh, he's always seems to be lusting after um women that uh theo has doesn't understand why he would uh there's a whole plot about his him getting a girlfriend and then having less time for theo uh and uh, one the plot that the film picked up on uh was um when uh the, the way Boris speaks about because Boris thinks Zandra is really hot and kind of is really nice to her and kind of fancies her. And I think at one point asks Theo like how Theo would feel if he had sex with her, which um, in fairness is like the kind of thing that braggadocious fourteen year olds do. Yeah. And I, th- I think I think that's just that is all because it, it, does, it doesn't go anywhere. It's just all setting the scenery. It's all character. It's all like tells you about Boris and Boris's relationship with Theo. Um, and but translating that moment into film, there's just one short moment where Boris is looking at Xandra, sunbathing through the window and tells Theo that she's hot um and and seems to be like lecturing after her and then it's forgotten about and in in the film that comes across as like well what was that for that didn't go anywhere um that's never referenced again why did we spend that plot beat on that well it was that and also the plot boy the
1: plot point that they choose not to capitalize on is like the sexual relationship between Theo and Boris Mm. because it says in the book that they like sort of experiment with each other and that, and then they also kiss in the movie and in the book and in the book that comes across as like, Oh, there's like something going on between them that is, you know, like more than just a friendship. And even though like those lines are blurred, not binary, but you know what I mean? Whereas like, in the movie, it kind of just comes across as some, like, Sopranos bullshit. Yeah. <laughs> of just, like, this is a big, meaningful moment, so I guess we're going to kiss. And it's just, yeah. like, no, that could have really been something, which I kind of wanted to come back to in, like, how we fix this. Yeah. But I was, like, you had the characters there to go further with this. Because, mm. like, arguably, that their love story is the
0: greatest one in the book. And so, yeah, that's... Yeah. I don't... Well, if you want to move on to how we fix this... Um... Sort of my exercise that I sort of set for myself after leaving the film is, um, which I think is different to your exercise. Yeah. Which your exercise is probably going to be more successful. <laughs> uh, mine was was just wondering: is it possible to take that film in its completed states and re-edit it to fix it using only what's already there? Mm-hmm. Um, and I could definitely see like like because I I think one of the as we've said the biggest problem is the. Order that it structures its narrative. And I think you can definitely improve it by uh, giving it a more chronological order. Mm -hmm. Um, But I kept going on to, well, like, oh, if I were to adapt the book, what moments what moments were missing that I need. And the thing I really felt it missed was a lot of the tension about having stolen this painting, like the logistics of like, Oh, where do I hide it? When the social services come to collect me, how do I make sure that nobody who, who, who has access to the apartment will find it? Uh, How do I deal with the logistics of, we're moving to moving to Las Vegas on a plane. I want to take it with me, but I don't want them to find it. All of that tension that underpins all of what's going on. um, I realized it just isn't there. Um, And, there's, yeah, you know, I don't think there's any way of capturing that feeling without doing reshoots. Yeah, I
1: think so. I think it's there's footage that it's possible to reasonably surmise that they have. Like, even the fact that they come, like, they must have shot him hiding the, apart- the painting in the apartment. And if they mm. didn't, like, fucking take John Crowley out back, like, on <laughs> yellow and just... Because, like, how you... Yeah, like, why they thought, why he was so confident in the edit. They're like, we will not need him hiding
0: the painting that yeah. he stole. The whole book is about him stealing a painting. I do well, not know. We'll introduce the painting for the first time when he goes in, like, he'll go to his flat and seem kind of bored about doing it. Um, and the the, the focus of the scene seems to be on like oh it's quite scary going back to the flat where you used to live with your now dead mother Um, and then he goes to his room doesn't seem to show any concern about where Mrs. Barber is doesn't like look back at the door to see if she's close and could catch him then finds this distinctive yellow bag where the painting is hidden and takes the painting out and that's when we first learn about the painting and we're supposed to infer it doesn't it doesn't directly tell you that this painting was stolen by Theo from the the museum. There's no shot of, us, of, of the painting being in the museum before the explosion happened. It's just like, he has a painting in a bag, and from that we're supposed to infer that he stole it. Um, but he doesn't, and we're also supposed to infer that he has strong emotions about what he's done, um, and none of that comes across. I just feel like, yeah, and it's like so much of...
1: I feel like you could restructure this to make it into, with the existing footage, to make it into a better film than it is. Mm. Or with footage that you see in the movie and also footage that it's reasonable to guess that they have. However, the problem is it would still be two and a half hours. And I feel like it wouldn't be good enough to keep my attention for two and a half hours. I think you probably get the movie hours. I just wasn't expecting a total car crash. I was expecting, like, that's fine. Mm. It's a bit oscar but the book's better. Yeah. Because, um, yeah, I feel like the...
0: Um, I don't know, did you do other stuff you want to say on the edit before I launch into... Uh, is it, I, the, only other, the only other things I can say about the edit is um, I liked the scene where um, his dad tries to get him to uh, transfer money from his uh, savings account mm. and turns out he can't and his dad goes crazy. That was one good scene in the film um and yeah about f- fixing it in the edit is yeah you're right it'll still be too long and the tone will still be wrong it'll still be too like it, it looks very pretty it's uh it's just like the mise-en-scene cinematography stunning yeah i don't think it's right for this story
1: no if they'd made a documentary narrated by jeffrey wright about chairs shot in the yeah. way they're shot in this movie I'd watch like an hour of that on BBC4 100% yeah. I just don't think it was the right thing for this movie um, yeah so sorry sometimes you're gonna hear my notebook because i got <laughs> excited. excited um, the I feel like so much of this movie was the pre-production stage were the biggest problems mm. um, decisions made at that point point. Um, and therefore I know I'm doing slightly the like Fanficky thing of like if I was casting this movie, but try to think of it in terms of like the decisions you make in pre production and also not just making it a movie that 's like fun to watch but also like a movie that would have made more than a quarter it this movie only made at the box office a quarter of its advertising budget wow it it is looks like it 's on track for twenty five million its advertising budget was a hundred million, and then the budget of the movie was much more than that again, so it 's just it 's been catastrophic um and basically it's a good thing that once upon a time in hollywood came out this year to prove that you can still do like movies that aren't about superheroes because <laughs> um, otherwise they would have really used that as an excuse to like not make anything like the goldfinch for another decade mm. um so first problem with the movie casting um don't think angel Engel's very interesting the guy that they've got playing boris is a french actor who an adult. Yeah, sorry, Boris is an adult who is a French actor who I'm sure was in something great that won the Golden Monocle at Telluride or whatever, but in this movie it's just like an uninspiring choice. He looks like a French actor. Like, <laughs> he does not look like someone who is deeply in the crime world. Um, my two big things about this movie are like, it should not be treated like a prestige literary biopic. It should be treated as what it essentially is, which is YA slash crime novel, mm. which is really what it's about. Um, I also just think that, and then the child actors, Finn Wolfhard, even though he tries his best, is wrong for this role, and is also too old.
0: Yeah. Um,
1: he is, I think, like, because, you know, if he, if you would got Finn Wolfhard when he's in Stranger Things 1, maybe, but, like, kids that age, they shoot up. Yeah. And as someone else said in another review of The Goldfinch, and, like, he just, he looks like, they look like teenagers of different ages, which is not what they're supposed to be. So... I'm talking about casting stuff and production choices. I'm saying this is like, indicative of the choices that could have been made as opposed to indicative of the choices that could have been and, like, discussion sparking points and whatever. Um, Kid Theo, not saying anyone knows who this kid is. Uh, There are just better child actors out there than that kid. There's a kid called Brady Noon who's in the Seth, Seth Rogen comedy Good Boys who is just really funny and capable of looking like he is experiencing the situation that he is experiencing on screen (laughs) which sometimes that kid did not directing child acts is incredibly hard very few people can do it really well but and so much of it's down to casting so basically really it's just like get a better casting director for kid boris don't cast finn wolfhard don't worry about doing his weird expat accent yeah instead just do an open casting call for every... Like, use your big budget, which they did have, to do a casting call of every 14-year-old first-generation Russian immigrant kid in America who has a vague, interesting acting and get... Which is what, like, Spielberg used to do and, like, get them into a room and just do a thousand auditions and you will find a kid who's good. Like, that's how it's going to work. And just make him Russian. He can make reference to the fact he's moved around a lot but he doesn't have to have a weird accent. He just has a Russian accent and that's fine. Um... I think that the movie needs to be stripped down to a story between Boris and Theo. Oh, absolutely, because as I've said, they are the they are the greatest like central relationship and arguably love story in the whole book mm. and there is nothing that there's nothing that could anchor a movie better than a story between them,
0: especially because they also do the most, the yeah. most exciting things happen to them. So, yeah. so and and then yeah, you could absolutely spend less time with the barbers, but I think the film like tried to I tried to create an interesting relationship between um, Theo and our biggest star Nicole Kidman so she must be the heart of the film um and it it did come off rather empty um, yeah. and I can I can see, see like why you, you might sort of shy away from like making it about Boris and Theo because Boris doesn't turn up for a good portion of the film um but yeah like by, by focusing they focus not only by focusing on the barber's story but also focusing on it sometimes to the letter of the book did not help them no I mean but, particularly they spent this whole time introducing Platt which is uh, the oh, father's yeah. eldest son who like is a troublemaker and like causes problems in the Barber's family and, and also just the, the actor who plays Platt <laughs> as a teenager looks
1: like someone who ran straight out of the like Milton Keynes Amdram production of A Streetcar Named Desire like, yeah well he had one line he, and like no and it, it's more like the way people react to him like yeah. he, he
0: swears and everyone's like <gasps> and it's just a yeah. very hokey and, and then he turns up later when they bump, each other, uh, bump into each other in the street and then that's how he meets up with the barbers again as an adult. But considering that his relationship to Kitsy, the daughter of the family who he ends up uh, being engaged to, is far more significant, he could have bumped into her on the street. Platt didn't need to be there at all. I mean, my argument's actually much more massive than that. I just, th- I just think you cut the barbers completely.
1: I don't think they need to be in the story at all. Mm. In the movie, someone points out online, I think it was the Indy Wire review... So, proportionate to their role in the book, they actually have a bigger role in the film, which they speculated is about Nicole Kidman. Because, again, it's like, she sells these things, so we have to expand what they are. Um, And, like, she is good in it. Um, So, also, like, Holtz Holtzman is my casting choice for the adult Theo and the younger... My casting choice for Theo, I initially would say someone like Evan Peters, who is a... He played... The most famous thing he's played, he played Quicksilver in the rebooted X-Men movies. Oh, yes. Um, But he's done a lot of interesting TV stuff, and he did American Animals, and he's got that kind of, like, manic edge that you think you need the adult theater to have. Then, I thought of some obnoxious David Fincher stunt casting that I actually think would have been good. Daniel Radcliffe. Oh, you would obviously have to
0: have him nickname not be Potter anymore. <laughs> um, so that's not not Daniel Radcliffe. I mean, he, yeah. he can still keep that nickname if you're not yeah. familiar with the book. That's uh, what Boris calls um, uh, the main character Theo because yeah. he wears glasses and he's
1: yeah. white. Exactly. Right. Yeah. And so when <laughs> when he meets him, he's like, "And oh, you look like Harry Potter." Like have him call him Decker or shithead or whatever. Yeah. Just like change his nickname um, because the, I don't know. Like if you looked watch stuff like Swiss Army Man, like Daniel Radcliffe can definitely play the character, which is essentially a drugged-up art dealer. Yeah. And then, for adult Boris, Adam Driver.
0: Yes.
1: Because, as an adult, like, it's meant to be someone who is... Boris is meant to be scary as an adult. He's meant to be someone who towers over Theo. And he's also got to be someone who has great chemistry with Theo. Hmm. In the underrated biopic, What If?, Daniel Radcliffe and Adam Driver play best friends... And they have great on-screen chemistry together. Um, they do there are some like really good dramatic scenes within the movie. They also have a hilarious height difference. Um, <laughs> to the point where it might almost be a problem with this, but I don't know, just Tom Cruise in it and put him on a box or something. But it's like Adam Driver towers over Theo and also fits the physical description of Boris. Yeah. So therefore you basically have a movie where the pitch is take the prestige biopic thing off the table. You have a movie, um a movie about queer art thieves played by Daniel Radcliffe and Adam Driver. Yeah. And that is the... I hope you can the term queer isn't gratuitous, but it's like, oh, yeah, that, no, totally. that, that's the relationship that they have. I would watch the fuck out of that film. Exactly. And so it's like, and then, so it's like, okay, you get Daniel Radcliffe involved in it because, you know, you make sure he's got some glasses that aren't round. <laughs> and apart from that, he'll be up for playing this role because drugged up art dealer. The way you get Adam Driver to do it is you get an interesting director who's not John Crowley. Mm. I don't quite understand why he was picked because... His last movie made 40 million. It got lots of awards, but it wasn't a huge film. So you get someone like the Safdie brothers, who I showed you the trailer of their movie, who are Mm. crime directors. They do very like New York kind of crime films, but like they're much more recent and updated. Actors like Robert Pattinson and now Adam Sandler have both done Safdie brothers movies to do something like cool crime. Uh, Also, the Safdie brothers are apparently quite good at working with child actors. Mm. So they would also be able to do the younger stuff and they know how to tell a gritty crime story. If you're listening to this and interested, just watch a trailer online for
0: Good Time or Uncut Gems or something like that. You'll see the kind of movie. Yeah, and and you showed me that trailer after shortly after we saw the film. Yeah. Um, and there's like, like, um, I don't. I think there's many correct tones that you could tell the Goldfinch in. Mm-hmm. Um, but seeing that trailer, it's just like, oh yeah, this feels like a much more interesting and apt take on the goldfinch than just pretty literature film well exactly
1: and it's also you know the footage of uncut gems that's come out it's really just about like the like jewelry dealers in manhattan which like i've been down those dealerships to try and sell a bracelet i had it was not worth anything Mm. it was embarrassing um but like (laughs) they're not as scary as that trailer makes it look Mm. it's just like knowing where the interesting stuff is and knowing how to
0: shoot something and and i think it really does come across in in the film we did get um that whoever was not necessarily the director, but the the creative team, were not very au fait with that world because like like it really stuck out um, whenever the the teenagers took drugs because it was like oh look a drug and they are doing one look yeah. at that oh look they've done another drug um, and especially since well, I one of the things I really like about the about the book is that like the whole Las Vegas like section sort of passes in a sort of haze where you, like like every day sort of seems the same um and then they sort of meld it together and then towards the end of the film big spoilers end of the story um boris um sort of they they meet up again and boris reveals that actually he took the painting and the, even though theo is adamant he never told boris about the painting but it turns out uh that boris is able to quite accurately accurately describe this is when you told me this is how i took it this is what happened what in las vegas and it sort of fits um and you realize then that oh actually theo's addiction problem is far more severe than than he's led us to believe as the narrator of this story and yep. and it's yep. sort of it's sort of like this um i described it um as like uh, in filmic terms, the scene in uh, Fight Club when it, it's revealed that... Um, um, the, uh, another spoiler for Fight Club. Uh, <laughs> if you've not seen it, but, oh, come on, everyone knows. Yeah. Uh, that uh, Tyler Durden and the narrator are the same person. And then you see these sort of flashes of previous scenes of how, like, oh, this is... Ha-, like, and then all of a sudden, this begins to make sense. thats how I felt that that's how that moment should feel. I know it's the quintessential plot twist that, everyone, that every student filmmaker tries to do, uh, including myself. Um but it is that the way that moment is played in this film is just that, like, oh, like he just tells him, and it doesn't feel like, oh, Theo, your perception of yourself and your own history is actually skewed in favour of you
1: thinking well of yourself. And also, that's that's never really explored in the book. I mean, there are so many things that aren't. First of all, Theo just Theo or Boris never look like they're on drugs, despite the fact it's very. It's said that they are. Mm. But they both have substance abuse problems. I mean, there's a really great book uh, by Kat Marnell called How to Murder Your Life, which is the book I can think of which describes a real-life experience that's closest to Theo's. She didn't steal the very famous painting, but she... <laughs> she that we know of. <laughs> yeah. She's a bit sloppy, I don't know how she... Like, she was hooked on various things, including amphetamines, while maintaining a job at Vogue. So it was this very high-flying job that's in a similar world to what Theo's is. And so, like, yes, in public, she was able to maintain, like, put, you know, hold herself together, she thought. Mm. And she thought she was fooling everyone. And then the things she sort of says in the book was that, like, in private, she was a fucking mess. Like, there are, th- there are times when she describes, like, coming home and then literally just, like, putting her hand under a shirt and just, like, picking scabs off. And, like, you know, like, the horrible things that happen to you when you treat your body really badly, which, like, you'd think two men who have lived off vodka and potato chips mm. from the age of 13 and, like, taken nothing but pills, you'd, they'd feel some consequences of. And it doesn't have to be train spotting. Like, they've both got money and ways to hide it. But you should know that when they're on screen and they just don't. The other thing about, like, Boris and the painting, which I feel like is discussed and implied perfectly well in the book, but in the movie, I just didn't get quite a sense of, like, how much Boris had changed and how much money and power he had. And it's, like, stuff that the film makes you think about. Like, I realised today when I was Googling it, the Goldfinch is estimated to be worth $300 million, Mm. which is a huge amount of money. And the, re- the way Boris gets rich is by using that as, a, as collateral during drug deals. So in theory, it's like, I will give you this, you will give me $200 million worth of coke, and then I'll go sell it. So if Boris has been doing that multiple times, he's bordering on like minor oligarch status at this point. Yeah. He is not just like a man with a nice coat and a limo. And, like, even if he's not flashy with his wealth, again, you just... You get the sense of, like, oh, Boris has done all right for himself. Mm. As opposed to what it is in the book, which is, like, this hugely powerful man has just come out. And you're supposed to be being, like, how the fuck... Like, how is this guy not a mess? Because we've all met a kid kind of like Boris. Yeah. Like, not to the same extreme, but lots of us have encountered Boris Light. And you don't expect them to walk back into your life at age 35 being a millionaire. Well, especially
0: because in the book... um... Theo gets a sense of the uh, the um, the way that the goldfinch is the painting is being used in these drug deals because um, he like n- n- reads like um, newspaper articles about it where it's being right. speculated that oh this is the and the whole time he's like ha ha that's not true because the goldfinch is in my uh, lockup downtown um, to, and then but then which is another reason why when he speaks to um, to um, Boris and Boris reveals that no, I have the painting. Uh, mm. All of a sudden, it's like, oh, he fucking does. Uh, yeah. It's that. It's that. It's that plot twist moment where it's. It, I, I don't want. It isn't. You know. It isn't the same as like, oh, uh, soil and green is people. Or that's. But it is that sort of that realization that um, Theodore has been delude, deluding himself. I mean, the which one... just doesn't come across in the film.
1: I mean, to me, the the, the prime time to explore that would have been. Apart from the moment when Theo tells him, like we could see, we could see the scene where, you know, even if we could we could see a scene when they're kids and Boris and Theo decides not to show him the painting, and then when Boris is like, "No, you showed it to me," we see the same scene again, and then it's like that he showed it to him. Also, Theo's like drug induced stupor that he take that has in the hotel in Amsterdam at the end would be a prime time for us to see him remembering things yeah. differently like you know whether it's the whether it's like scenes with his mother scenes with Kitsy, um or you know like Manny or sorry manic pixie bomb victim as it was played yeah. out in the movie or stuff with Boris like you could and then that
0: will make those scenes interesting opposed to just like ooh oh, a good yeah. or that's the thing it was just like oh and then he goes on a it's, yeah that's how the, the story sort of played out it's like oh, and then he went on a drug field bender but then Boris turned up and and you're like even though that isn't that isn't really how it plays out in the book. To have a scene like that, where in his drug fuel bender he remembers everything as it actually was, that's not how it happens in the book. If that did happen, in the film that would be speak far more closely towards the theme of the book and the f- the feeling of the book than the film actually does by copying it to the letter. Um, right. Like because that 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 is what Donna Tart does so well in all of her stories, uh, but particularly in sort of what the Goldfinch is about. It is about this sort of misremembered history and to to like see to have a film that is entirely about um this uh this theodore's um own perspective of his own history and then to have the climactic moment of that be the veil lifting and him realizing how he's misremembered everything would be far more powerful and speak far more tr- speak far more to the truth of the book than than the version we have does.
1: Right, and I just think the thing is like, if you just want to dance like that, you've got to change stuff. Like, essentially, my view of it is you, you know, I mean, you could just cut the barbs out completely, which basically means at the start of the movie, instead of going to the, going, you know, leaving the bomb, like leaving the attack with the painting. Going home, spending time there, going to the barbers, spending weeks there, and then going to Hobart and Blackwell instead because, unlike there is so much of it as bad as sounds, you could wave away with because he's concussed. Yeah. Um, uh, he just from the museum, he just goes to Hobart and Blackwell, yeah, and he just goes straight there. So then at that point, with into like a crazy amount of details about how you do it, you essentially can do. <clears throat> the first you know like if you cut out the barbers and hobie is the person he's always staying with and that his dad takes him away from yeah you then and then so you then get that over with i would say maybe the start of the movie you have him as an adult perhaps being accused of stealing the painting as he is at one point yeah and then from that point it's just him being the line isn't this because the book's better than i can but the the line where he's something like i've never seen that painting before Mm. or whatever it is and then you cut to
0: him as a child looking at the painting and then you're like, oh, yeah. here's how he's, that... He's, yeah, and that's a great... That's a g- gauge because it takes you right to the start of the film where, the, like, where that inciting moment happens of the explosion. Mm. But already you've been... You've, you've learned one thing about him because he says, I've never seen that pointing, b- painting before my, in my life cut to this significant moment of a child where he's... like, Before we even know he's stolen it, he's looking at the painting. Theo is a liar. Right. And and that is true in so many respects in that he lies to everyone but he also lies to the reader. Um, yeah. And so, like, if, if yeah, that that is that's a really engaging start, especially because it speaks to perhaps the most uh, prevalent truth of Theo as a character. Yeah, I'm not sure if he could go um, directly to uh, Hobart and Blackwell from the museum because because when does Pippa get there, and that means he would get there before Hobie learns that Blackwell is dead. But I do think it does like having him stay there instead of with the barbers. Uh, means you have to get rid of Kitsy, but well, what's she for? Um, I mean, if anything, Kitsy could be
1: a way to art- to further articulate Theo's sort of. Problem like his relationship with reality in the sense of like he could see his relationship with Kitsy like one mm. particular oh could... sorry no wait Kitsy's the fiance not sorry. Pippa sorry, sorry. yeah ma- ma- yeah no. so K-
0: Kitsy is um uh, the Blackwell's daughter who in like when he comes no it's he comes Pippa's, back... no Pippa's the daughter we've got mixed up no names. so Pippa Pippa is the not well the ward of Blackwell um mm. and Kitsy is the daughter of the barbers who becomes his fiance in the future but I've realised this whole problem could be solved with just like. Oh, we introduce her in the future. Um...
1: Yeah, or, yeah. It's like, or he like sees her briefly as a. He sees her briefly as a teenager. becomes fixated on her as the one that got away. And like mm. again, it's it's something that he's made up. And at that point, you just you have like Vegas, which could play out with. I feel like some of the scenes that they decide to keep or remove could be better chosen. Mm. You obviously have like better casting. I would keep. Uh, Luke Wilson and Sarah Paulson. I also think casting Owen Wilson's less famous brother as Theo's dad is kind of perfect because mm-hmm. yeah. Theo's dad is an out of work actor um, with some real, uh, also with some real problems and then after that it, you have you know go straight back to New York you have Boris show up um, maybe what Boris tears Theo away from to go to Amsterdam instead of an engagement dinner is like a dinner with Pippa or Hobie where they yeah. are going to be like you've got a fucking problem and then it's like he he thinks something's going to happen at that dinner that wasn't. Yeah. Um, and then they go... To, and then at that point, you've then got like an hour, hour and ten minutes of movie, assuming it's going to be a two-hour film, mm. where you basically just have a crime movie that follows everything that happens in Amsterdam in detail. Yeah. And the only other thing I'd say is, in the book, Boris actually had to actively track down the painting so he can then call the police on them for the reward. Mm. And in the book... Boris tells Theo about that, but that's fine because it's a
0: book. So we're like seeing that. Whereas in the movie, it's not an engaging way of. of, Not only not an engaging way of like telling that plot beat, but it's also not an engaging way of ending a film. And in an effort to condense it, they change it from like it wasn't even Boris that did that, it was
1: like Boris's mate in a bar heard about Mm. it, so then they just called the police and that solved everything. Whereas in the movie, because now you've got more time, we just see Boris do all that. Mm. And like we follow him, and maybe that's because I really want to make a movie about Boris.
0: <laughs> um, but because yeah, that... I disagree slightly that the um, the, the amount that what do you say, like an hour, an hour and a half of the film is about Amsterdam? Oh, uh, um, hour, hour and ten. So like, I would, I, I think less than that because I still I would. But I do agree that we should spend less time in. Certainly, like we can get rid of the barbers. Hmm. Spend some time introducing Hobie because we need to build that relation, that emotional relationship, to understand why he comes back, and the emotional relationship with Pepper. Uh, but yes, get to get to Las Vegas quicker because that's where Boris is, and then you can spend a lot more time in Las Vegas. And when you have more time, um, you can create more that sense of uh, listlessness, which is what. It's what their life is like but also um, fascinating which is such a yeah. hard thing to do yeah and you can and you can structure it a bit more montage like right. where like where you have that sort of sense of the days running into each other um and which will serve you really well later on when you ha- have to go back and actually pick up how what actually happened in las vegas and also you see how like theo changed over that time because mm-hmm. he doesn't really seem to
1: have changed in the movie like it's You know, apart from the fact that we see him as a grown-up, so he's a different actor, so obviously he's changed. But Mm. in the book, you sort of get this sense of like, okay, this is how this kid went from, like, innocent... Like, innocent, but, like, not as perfect as he remembers Mm. child, through to criminal. Which is what the arc of the story kind of is at that point. And I just think, like, given the time to spend... And also some different choices in production and performance and whatever. Yeah. Like, because it's weird that in the movie when he crosses country with Popchick, uh, his stepmom's stolen dog, Yeah. Um, it's seen as, like, kind of desperate, but in my head, I'm like, this not that it could be like an uplifting sequence, mm. but it should be, like, kind of a testament to his resourcefulness. Yeah. Because, like, running away when you're 13 and staying hidden is really hard. And yeah. getting across, getting across America on a Greyhound full stop is hard. So it's like, if we could almost see that as like he could never have done that before he went to Vegas, yeah. But now he can, and he knows how to look after
0: himself in this very teenage way, yeah. And I remember like the way that scene is handled in in the book as well, first of all, like we have a much stronger emotional relationship with Popchick because um, uh, it's much more well as I mean it is it is paid lip service too in the in the book that Sandra's sort of neglectful of her dog. Uh, there's just one scene where they come back after being in New York, and the dog has shit everywhere, and no one came to look after it. But Xandra is insistent that it's fine because she left a lot of food.
1: Also, why didn't we see that the dog shit everywhere?
0: Yeah, like in the in the film, it was like that was a bit great moments that. Like, well, welcome to Las Vegas. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <It's> like... <laughs> a big empty house full of dog shit. Yeah, um, and and then so then in the film when he decides to not only go back to New York. Um, by himself, but also the, like, but then decides to to take the dog. Mm-hmm. We don't. Well, why is the fuck is he taking this dog? Because we we're not given the sense that they've developed any sort of relationship with the dog. I think I feel that the only reason in the book Theo really cares about the dog is because Boris does, um, and uh, and and then we're not really given any sense of the sort of the problems that that has caused because you can't bring pets on Greyhound buses. Yeah. Uh, and not only is he trying to get to New York by himself as a minor also carrying a what he believes is a stolen painting <laughs> but is also trying to do it like carrying a dog like i'm not necessarily sure that like that that film is that, that scene is necessary for like for the emotional journey of the film mm. um but it comes across as a lot more tense and engaging in the book
1: yeah exactly because you are just like he's going to get caught he's going to get caught as opposed to in the movie you're just like
0: Oh, shouldn't be doing Is that. Least... I should call an adult, shouldn't well, it's, just, it's just like, oh, it's a road montage. Yeah, exactly.
1: It's just like, oh, he's feeding the dog some crisps. Guess that's cute. Um, yeah, and I think the, I guess the reason, I see what you mean in that, like, you need to spend time in Vegas just because that stuff's so good. Yeah, I, also, I just think like, it's, th-
0: it's it's you need to develop that emotional relationship with Boris before you reintroduce him. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, maybe it's more of a,
1: I yeah it's but, uh, for for can, me for it's, me, it's just like getting to Amsterdam so much sooner because mm. that is such a great like
0: second second
1: half ish i see it as half.
0: see it as third act yeah and i think I think that comes you can you can see the structure quite clear where well, you have the first act, which is about the explosion and the immediate fallout and introducing Hobie, then you have the second act, which is uh first half of the second act is las vegas uh, and then you have the mid turning point he goes back to New york second. Like it was probably going to be quite short. Second half of the second act is uh, him as an adult uh, and the situation and meet, re-meeting Boris. Then third act is um, Amsterdam and drug fuel bender, where he re-remembers all the like previous moments of the of the film in a different light. Um, and then yeah, there you go. That's a that is a a much simplified version of that story, but a version of that story that speaks to the emotional truth of the book and is much easier to commit to film. And with good actors, gives you
1: time to actually so much of what is like it gets to the core so much of like what the book is about which is like the relationships between objects and people and memory and how we obsess over things and that story leaves articulates leaves room for all of that stuff the only other plot point that really stuck with me well, the two things: one, when Theo ODs, or like sort of ODs, and like Boris has to save him mm. in the film. Again, that comes across as like, "Oh, I had a bit too much to drink, did you, Theo?" Like Boris. Yeah, is I this... do you remember that. In the yeah, film? basically, Boris is just suddenly in his hotel room and helping him, and I just feel like no, that should be like Theo's going to die, and Boris has to save him. Yeah. Um. As Boris has done time and time again, but Theo still
0: sees him as a thug because Theo's not very nice. Yeah. And, and it's a bit. Classism, racism, uh, right? The, the, you, you, the, you know, a lot of white Americans have,
1: yeah, exactly. And the other thing is that at the end of the movie, I don't know when the, the other thing I was like, should the movie have voiceover that is then revealed, as is the book, that it's being written by Theo? And that's another way of saying, like, this is an unreliable narrative.
0: Mm.
1: I mean, mm. I feel like it, it could have voiceover if the voiceover was very clearly saying things that were a bit off, yeah. But I also wouldn't want to slap it on just for the sake of a reveal at the end when there might be other ways, like we discussed, to reveal, like... Yeah. I don't
0: know. No, I don't think it would would work. Maybe um, I guess
1: you just want some clarification at the end, where it's like Theo thinks he's fine, but he might not be.
0: Yeah, but I'm sure, I'm sure there's a, a filmic way of doing that. Um,
1: yeah, whether it's again, maybe it's ending with like the scene that Theo talks about right at the end of the book. Yeah. Where it's like him and Boris doing,
0: or Boris is doing heroin and Theo's yeah. there. Well, oh, just a scene where he comes back to the to the shop um, and speaks to Hope and like speaks to Hobie and says, "Oh, it's all fine." And but clear, like even though he thinks, "Oh, it's all fine now." Clearly, his relationship with Hobie has changed because Hobie has discovered that he's been selling fake antiques and uh, ruined his reputation. And then also a scene with Pippa where he like thinks like, "Oh, now this is all fine," but of course, Pippa sees him differently as well. Um, just yeah. the scene where it's just like, "Oh, like," and yeah, that's another emotion, I, emotional speaks more to the emotional truth of the book where it's that he comes back and thinks, like, "Oh, everything will be fine now," and it turns out, no, actually, you're not who you think you are. You are worse than Boris yeah um and these you had fooled not only yourself but all of the people you cared about yeah and it's like he sort of he because the book ends with him having to
1: use the reward money from returning the painting to give all the money back to all the people that he robbed and he's mm. like well this is a nice jaunt around the country and i'm, I'm sure it's humiliating for him that <laughs> yeah. you have to do this and
0: yeah especially like how the film ends with like in his drug fuel bender he sees the face of his mother which hadn't been revealed in the film up until that point um and i had actually quite enjoyed that they hadn't revealed it and then when they did i was like oh okay so that's what his mum looks like i'm <laughs> like imagine he looks up and sees like raw shark's mask or something and yeah. like, oh my God. like that would might have been a better twist um and then and then it goes back to what well, really ought to like ought to have been the first moment in the film in the museum before um the explosion has happened both um Theo and his mum and Pippa and blackwell um and uh, both groups um stand in front of the goldfinch and look at it and that is and that is a hugely significant moment in the book because that is when he first sees Pippa, they like make eyes at each other and it's a pretty male gazy moment, but it means the next time we see Pippa, like we understand a lot about their relationship where like they have had felt this sort of You know, juvenile attraction towards each other, and now they are linked by this event. Um, And the first time we see Pippa in the film is when he meets her for a second time. We don't know that he saw her at the museum, we we just learn because she was it, like she's is still injured from the explosion, that she was there as well. But we we don't know that they have any history together.
1: Well it's also that like we don't get the sense that especially as adults, Theo is projecting onto Pippa. Because mm. I feel like that's a, there's an interesting article saying about that's like kind of a theme in Donna Tartt's books where basically someone's saying like Donna Tartt never writes fe- well, has what I mean, people say she never writes female female protagonists. A third of her books, one yeah. of three, have a female protagonist. Oh, um but the It basically it does her books... It's a history of, like, men projecting things onto women. Yeah. And I didn't really sense the director was... Again, like, we understand it better than John Brown. I didn't really get the sense the director was picking up on that. I just was like... He, his description of Pippa was, like, nice girl. Like, yeah. it was, you know, wishes she could do violin again. Um. I, I, and, like, I just think... Just have Pippa, like, know what's going on more. And that, and also just have, again, like, I don't know, there are so many people who could do it, but just, like, a more interesting actress and twist the role to be, like, Pippa is just not really into Theo. Yeah. And that's one of the problems. Like, cares for him deeply as a friend or relative, kind of, but not in That's our time. Not in the way that he wants her to. Yeah. And again, because the real love story is between him and Boris. And that's, yeah. Uh,
0: yeah. And yeah i feel this what we the structure that we've come up with our minor disagreements about it aside mm. um it's a f- you know it's far simpler than the book is of course uh which maybe maybe speaks again to like oh it's, this is a very difficult book to adapt um and maybe it's impossible to to adapt it in such a way that will fully do it justice but i do think a simpler story that um speaks to the heart of the emotional arc of the book is better than trying to figure out what is the most important things in, of, in the book, st- stuff them all in, and then try and re-edit them in an order which keeps the audience engaged because you kind of know that it's not interesting. Exactly. I think the way to do
1: it is just, like, if you're going to adapt something, the most important thing is just to have a point of view and, like... And be and, and that often means being ready to change things. Yeah. And if you look at all of the best literary adaptations, they often do that.
0: So, yeah, but you have to wrap this up to your podcast. I guess some joke about how adapting the goldfinch might be a waste of time. Nailed it. <laughs> Waste of Time featured the voices of me, Jim Woodall, and Callum Smith. Music by Anthony Bullinger.